On this journey of life, who will show us the way? The road can be rugged, the path sometimes unclear. Jesus said, I am the road, also the truth, also the life. No one gets to the Father apart from me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him. You've even seen him. And so as we light the Advent candle and wait for God's completion of his kingdom on this earth, we hold fast to Jesus. And with Jesus in our hearts and the promises of hope in our spirits, we receive now God's word in Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. The day will come, says the Lord, when I will do for Israel and Judah all the good things I have promised them. In those days and at that time, I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will do what is just and what is right throughout the land. In that day, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this will be its name. The Lord is our righteousness. You may be seated. Yeah, that was my son, Asher, and he enjoyed that way too much, putting, putting that together. Have you ever gotten a Christmas present that you really didn't want to get? Some of you might be sitting with your loved ones and you don't really want to admit that, but I think we've all been there. We've all made that face before where we're saying, thank you so, oh, wow, you, you shouldn't have, really, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have have done that. I think we, we've all been there and it's awkward and it's tense and let's face it that the people that give us these bad gifts, they can see our disappointment a mile away. And we, we're really not that good at, at acting it out. They, they can see it and we feel the tension and we feel the awkwardness of that. And so I think what we've done over the years just to avoid that because, you know, growing our, our little, you know, conflict avoiders that we are, um, we, we've just gotten ourselves in the habit of, of giving gift cards, right? Because that seems to be a lot easier. You just get rid of the tension. You just give them the gift card and, you know, then they can just take, care, take it from there. And there's no disappointment. There's no awkwardness. You don't have to deal with all of that. And you are all good to go. But, of course, you know, when it comes to gift cards, and, and I have my, my wife's family, you know, they, they don't like to give gift cards, right? Because... Uh, in giving gift cards, you actually avoid the, maybe the awkward tension that exists there, but you also prevent yourself for when you get the good gift, right? That you could really open up that box and, wow, this is really what, what, I, what I wanted. Well, we're now in the season of Advent. We're not in Christmas season. Listen, we're not in Christmas season. No matter what the, the malls will tell you and the ads on TV and all of that, we are in Advent season. And Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means the arrival. It's a time of anticipation. Here's the cool thing about Advent. That in the first century, as the people of God were anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, we, 
as people of Jesus, believing in the Messiah, we also enter into the same sense of anticipation because Jesus promised that he would come again and bring about the fullness of the kingdom of God to put, as one of my favorite authors, N.T. Wright said, put the world back to rights again. And so as we celebrate with anticipation of Jesus' second arrival, we can identify with when Jesus arrived the first time and the anticipation and the sense of hope that people had. Now, some of you have been in church a long time, you know that there are all kinds of prophecies about Jesus in the Bible, about the Messiah in the, in the Bible, that Jesus fulfilled. But if Jesus just fulfilled all of them, maybe the story wouldn't end up the way it did. But what happened was that Jesus fulfilled them in ways completely unexpected by, the, by God's people in that day. And so over these next uh, four weeks plus Christmas Eve, we are going to be looking at what some of the first century expectations of the Messiah were, how Jesus fulfilled those expectations, but not in the way that the people of God were expecting them. And what that taught them, how that challenged them, what people ultimately accepted, what they ultimately rejected with, 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 with Jesus, and then that can speak to us about how we sometimes might have some expectations and what we can learn about who God is and who we are as God's people in, in the midst of that. So I just want to reiterate the, the, the scripture that uh, Rick read for us out of the book of Jeremiah, one of the prophecies, one of the scriptures about the Messiah. And I want to key in on Jeremiah 33, verse 15. And it says this, that in those days at the time, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch. And the version that Rick read for you was righteous descendant. But righteous branch of David. A branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And later says that the, the, the title will be called the Lord is our righteousness. I want to talk today about this idea of righteousness that existed in the land and how we might take it to mean here today. This scripture is very um, important because David, King David, was the most heralded king and the most popular king in Jewish history. And the lineage had passed on from David to Solomon and to the other kings of his descendants. But after Solomon, you know, and, and listen, David wasn't no perfect person either, but, but he was faithful and he would turn to the, return to the Lord after, being, uh, reveal, after his sin being revealed. There were all kinds of other kings that came after David in the, in the lineage of David. Well, you know, they really didn't have their act together. They were corrupt, many of them. They were certainly unfaithful. And so the prophets tell us in the, in the Bible here that God decided to cut off the lineage of David. But it didn't come without a promise. A promise, promise of restoration that God would one day return to the lineage of David. Specifically, a righteous branch that would then be called the Lord is our righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous. What does righteousness mean? Now, many of us would take it to be right 
standing with God or right actions or right, uh, doing the right things. And that's all true. But it's, it's much deeper than that. And, and certainly, Jesus came to correct the more limited and nor- sort of narrowed understanding that the people of that day had it. And the understanding that they had stemmed really from a series of events that happened several hundred years, a couple hundred years before the arrival of Jesus. The people were, uh, had their eye occupying or uh, rising armies, uh, superpowers of the world in that day, had their eye on that piece of land, that particular region. And of course, we read about in the Old Testament that there were wars, there were superpowers that laid siege into Judah and, and Israel, and they ran into all those problems and dealing with all of that. Well, the same was true in the years leading up because it was the cross-section between different continents and it was the sort of the way of travel between continents. It was a very rich, whoever could control that land, controlled the world's economy in that region. And so people sought after that land. And, and in the couple hundred years before Jesus arrived, it was the Greeks. And there was a Greek leader that came in. He He laid siege to Jerusalem and Israel and occupied the whole land. And he did not like the Jewish people. He did not like what they believed in. He did not like what they, uh, how they practiced their faith. And so as a way of controlling them, he did away with all of their, or at least the primary expressions of their faith. Of course, all tensions would rise after that. And the, the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back in that case was that this ruler came into the temple, completely desecrated the temple, completely uh, stole all of its goods, ransacked it, and left it in ruins. That led to a rebellion um, by a gentleman and his five sons, and they actually started a war against the Greeks, beat them back, But they weren't going to stop there. They were actually going to go after their own people who had sided with the Greeks that had come in before. And as the Greeks had uh, taken all of their rites and rituals and all of the ways of practicing their faith away from them, they were going to reinstitute those practices. And they were going to do it by force. They were going to make each person abide by all of the rules and the rites and the rituals of practicing the faith or else. That was a couple hundred years before Jesus arrived. But from that point to the point of Jesus, there was this sort of unfolding hyper-concentration and focus on following the rules, on attending to the very letter of the law. And what began to develop that Jesus would later challenge is that if you followed the rules, if you held fast to the law, every letter of it, then that will bring you closer to God. That will bring about righteousness. That will bring about right standing with God. It was a legalistic faith that, that had developed. Now, as a pastor, I uh, spend some time uh, Every once in a while, I go and visit, and all the pastors of the church would visit people in the hospital that, that uh, need to be prayed with and, and so on and so forth. And some of you might be very familiar with the hospitals around, around here. Some of you might not be. If you're not familiar with the hospitals around here, chances are you might find yourself getting lost if you were visiting one of the hospitals because our, our hospitals around here have, have gotten bigger 
and they keep adding more additions and, and outer shells and building on top of building. And some of our hospitals, you can imagine UH and the Cleveland Clinic, really big monstrosities of facilities, right? And if you go, like I would go and try to find a bedroom to go with someone and pray with them, maybe before surgery or after surgery or something like that. I would go to the front desk and I would ask them, tell them where I was going. And a lot of them would give me a map and they would even draw on the map for me. Here, some of the maps were like this big. I, I kid you not. And they would draw it out for me and the map would do me no good. I would still get lost in trying to make it to this room because the, 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 the way of getting there was just so complicated and the map, for whatever reason, didn't seem to match what I was seeing with my, with my very own uh, with my very own eyes. And I think life is oftentimes this way. I just don't know if there's really a map that fits perfectly and exactly for faith, for, for life. I mean, I wish that were the case. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if all of our decisions were mapped out for us ahead of time? I mean, wouldn't it be nice if there was no uh, ambiguity or, or abstraction or, or, or mystery in life? What if it was just all sort of ordered for us and then all we had to do is just follow the directions, turn by turn? Wouldn't that be nice? Think about all the compromising situations you've been in or the difficult decisions you've had to make. Think about the, the, the tense relationships that you've been in and you've been wondering, do I hold on to this relationship or do I let them go? What do I do? All of those situations where we are unclear, wouldn't it be nice that if it was just laid out for us? But that's not how life is, is it? We don't have an exact roadmap to take us where we are trying to go. And yet it was the, the, the people of God, that particularly the religious leaders that felt as though they had the roadmap. When I teach in my Bible class um, every session, one of the things I teach them is, is sort of arguing against an acronym that I have heard um, shared amongst different people at different times. And I don't know where it originated or started, but I've heard it many times. People use the word Bible for an acronym, basic instructions before leaving earth. And I think to myself, so that's what that is? Like, it's just, just a, a turn-by-turn roadmap to, to get to heaven? And is that what life is all about? Just doing all the right things, making all the right decisions, and then we get to go to heaven? Is that what, is that what this book is about? And what we find, and I think what the religious leaders of that day found as Jesus revealed it to them, that a legalistic faith doesn't get them where they really want to go. I used to be that kind of person. I've shared this with you. I like to say that I was the worst Christian you'd ever not want to meet. And I was focused on the rules and doing all the right things and I loved to point out when other people were getting it wrong. And I built a faith off of that, an identity from that. It was legalism. And yet, it didn't work for me ultimately because I found out, which I think the Pharisees found out in Jesus' day, 
is that I couldn't live up to my own standards. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't live into the example that I was setting for my own self. I just naturally became a hypocrite because I couldn't measure, I couldn't measure up. Legalism has all kinds of, of detriments to it and responses that, that we could have uh, as a result. When people have these, these standards that they're trying to uphold, they're ultimately going to face the fact that they can't measure up. And so they respond in a few different ways. One way that they might respond is, is what I'll call a sort of embellished righteousness. It's sort of like the social media dynamic that exists today. Our research shows that, that people are more likely to present a more flourished version of themselves on social media than what is in real life. And just like the Pharisees and Sadducees and other religious leaders of Jesus' day, they loved to uh, portray themselves as having deep, sincere, um, committed faith. And yet Jesus called them out for what was really happening. They just simply could not measure up. So if we're confronted with the fact that we can't measure up to our own standards, then we might embellish some things from time to time. Another response is maybe we find a distraction where we find a convenient judgment on someone else. And Jesus confronted that with some of the religious leaders as well. And Pastor Steve's going to talk about that uh, more in depth next week. But there is a third response, a, a different way that we can respond when we find out that we just can't measure up to the standards that we portray. And that is simply confession. That we just say, you know what? I can't. No matter how clever I might think I can be or strong that I am, I just can't measure up to that, to that standard. So I want to go through uh, an example, and if you would turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, we can go through this together. It's a particular example about how Jesus confronts this attitude that to be close to the rules is to be close to God. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, it says this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was this holy and sacred day where God had said they need to rest. That command that they need to rest uh, morphed and evolved into a you should not work. And that command of you shall not work um, evolved into a, a, a much more rigid sense that you should not lift a finger. Like you can't even symbolically work. You cannot do anything on the Sabbath or else you're going to be violating the law. But, says, his disciples were hungry. So you have a conflict there. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees, these were the religious leaders, saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him or his companions to eat 
but only for the priests. You know that guy David that you hold up as the shining example? Well, he, 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 he cheated too. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you, this is Jesus' signal, he's about to say something good. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so here we have religious leaders that have built categories and expectations and understandings of what the Messiah was going to do. That the Messiah was going to not only uphold their version of righteousness, but also herald and prop up the people that were, follow, that were, that were doing it, namely them. <laughs> and yet, Jesus didn't fit the mold, did he? He didn't uphold their categories or their expectations or their understandings. And in so doing, they completely missed out on the fact that Jesus was their Messiah right there with them in front of their very own eyes. When we approach Christmas, we celebrate the arrival of the Christ child. The arrival of the Christ child that brings about an understanding that here set before us is not another roadmap. That here set before us is not another list of do's and of don'ts, but that God himself in the flesh has said, I'm going to be here with you. I'm not going to give you a map. I'm going to be your guide. I'm not going to institute more relationship with the rules. I want a relationship between us, me and you. These sets of expectations that the Pharisees had, God did not fit into those expectations, and so they missed God altogether. And so as we approach this series during the season of Advent, I want to ask you a couple questions. And um, guys, you might be able to think about these when you're sitting in those comfy couches in the middle of the mall while your wives are in in the store shopping. But uh, at any point in time, you can think about these while you're driving. The first question is, where do we box God in with our own expectations? Where do we expect God to fit into what we think God should be doing. Where do we box God in with our own expectations? And the second question is kind of like it, but from a different angle, and that is, do we wish for God to surprise us? Do we want God to surprise us? Or do we operate with something that's called confirmation bias. Uh, we see this oftentimes, um, especially, uh, well, in, in all kinds of different avenues of, of life, confirmation bias. We are looking for people to confirm what we've already decided to be true. What kind of books do you choose when you're strolling through Barnes and Nobles? Do you look for the books that you already know you're gonna disagree with the author? Probably not. We look for those things. We, 
We look for websites that confirm what we've already decided to be true. We don't like to to be challenged in that way, and in some ways, we choose sort of a gift card version of faith. One that is easy, one that simply just goes along what we think we've already decided to be true. But what if God operates outside of that? Or bigger, what if God is bigger than that? What are we missing out on when we not only box God in, but we have no wish or desire for God to surprise us, to act outside of our, of our expectations? Jesus did not come to offer a roadmap. He came to be present with us. At some point we'll sing a song that uses the word Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. That God did not just simply send Jesus to say, okay, here's the way, follow that example, see you later, let's see how you do but instead says, I'm gonna be with you in this. That when we go through life, even the most tragic circumstances of life, even in the deepest amount of our own pain, we can never go back to God and say, well, you don't know how I feel. You don't know what I go through. You don't know what my life is like. We never can say that because God walked this same earth, breathed the same air, came down to be with us so that we would have a guide to show us which way to go and not to send us an arbitrary map and say, see you later. That's what we celebrate and that's what Advent is like and about. That we can be filled with hope and anticipation. Not so that we can do something, do this life and faith thing on our own, but that God is with us to comfort us, to guide us, to strengthen us, to prune us and challenge us, to convict us, to, 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 to mold and shape us into something bigger and better and to, to be a part of a life that, that, is, that is described as, uh, that fits into this vision of, the, of God's very kingdom. That's what God is offering to us in this Christmas or Advent season. I had to catch myself there. Jesus said, you need to learn, Pharisees, what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Because the sacrifice represented all the do's and the don'ts and things that they needed to do. But instead, he said, I desire mercy. You need to learn what it means to have mercy. And I think that if we can enter into an understanding and experience of mercy, we will also come to know Jesus in a deeper way. Mercy is described in a lot of different ways and we sing about it a lot of times in such a way that we um, are a part of the world's problems. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, and through owning that, we ask for God's mercy upon us. And that through God's mercy, we are reconciled to, to God. But there's also ways in which to, to live out the mercy that Jesus examples uh, to us. But we can't live out mercy until we accept mercy and truly receive and experience mercy. 
I mentioned that we tend to be conflict avoiders at times. And sometimes this is true, I'll just speak for myself, this is true when it comes to my relationship with God. I don't like to talk about when I fall short. I don't like to even talk about it in prayer to God when I fall short because I don't want to deal with that. I feel ashamed. I feel guilty. I feel a sense of of separation from God in my sin. But Charles Spurgeon offers a a, a really um, interesting way to look at this. And he says, a dark cloud is no sign that the sun has lost its light. And a dark black convictions are no arguments that God has laid aside his, his mercy. We are invited to experience and to embrace the mercy of God. No matter what we've done or, or who we've been, we are invited to go in, and enter into the mercy of Jesus Christ. And yes, it feels um, tense and, and difficult to admit or to confess what we've, what we've done wrong, but, but it's, it's because mercy is right around the corner through that expression of confession and, and repentance. So we're invited to accept and, and receive mercy. Is that something that we do regularly? I know it's easy to sing about and, and talk about, but is it something that we experience to be true? Or are we hard on ourselves? Do we find ourselves trying to meet standards that we hold up there and are constantly feeling as though we don't measure up and are living in a sense of condemnation because of it? Jesus is saying, look, you already, you need, you already know you're not gonna meet that standard. Enter in to my mercy. Enter into my mercy. Can we accept God's mercy? And then out of that, I want to ask you, are we able to extend God's mercy? As we receive God's mercy, are we able to give it away? There are what we call acts of mercy. These are actions reminding us and symbolizing God's mercy to us to tell people that they are loved, that they are valued, that they are full of worth, even though they live in circumstances that tell them the opposite. In their last service, I mentioned one really easy example of the Angel Tree Project that we do during the Advent season where you commit yourself to um, buying a gift for a child of a prison inmate. And that is an an act of mercy. Unfortunately, I made the mistake of mentioning it in in, in a sermon and people apparently responded and we are out of names um, for uh, the Angel Tree uh, Project. There's lots of other things. We have, um, uh, we have food baskets that we give away. We have Betty's Boutique, a free store in the back of our property. But you know, it's not just about for this Christmas season or holiday season either. It's about being a person immersed in the mercy of Jesus Christ, to experience it and to give it away, to take it on, to understand what it is in our hearts and our lives, and then being able to extend that same thing to to other people. In one of Jesus' most important sermons, 
Jesus says in Matthew 5, 7, he says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. And I can't help but to notice in this scripture, the connection between receiving and extending to having mercy and then to giving, giving it away. I wonder during this holiday season if we can commit ourselves to being people of mercy as we look for God to rise out of our own sense of expectations. Where have we fallen into the trappings of a legalistic faith? Where have we put an over-concentration on the parameters of the rules of religion? And instead, where have we allowed God to melt our hearts, to feel truly grateful for what Jesus has done, and to see in the, in the humility and gratitude of what Jesus has done for us, to look at other people with the same eyes of Christ, that same compassion, that same mercy on others, and be moved to do something about it. I wonder if this Advent would be different for us. And maybe it caught you by surprise like it did me. Like, oh man, it's December already. <laughs> and you've been wrestling around, oh gosh, we gotta put up the trees, we gotta put up the lights, we gotta do all these things. What are our traditions? What are our plans? What are we gonna do for Christmas? Ah, in the middle of all of that, don't forget Emmanuel. Don't forget the central call and invitation of Christ who says, guys, I'm here with you. My mercy is available to you and it's available to the world, but they don't know it yet, so I'm sending you out to give it to them. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. God, your mercy is here, available to us. Let us receive it. Help us to have open hearts to receive you, realizing that you are here, you are present, you are Emmanuel. Lord, in the midst of all the busyness and the craziness of the holidays, Lord, let us not forget you, your presence, your invitation to us. Let us be people of mercy as we receive it and we extend it to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name.
before my King and bow my heart to sing. You saved me, you raised me, you died so I could For a prayer, I want to give you a little context to something I'll be praying about. I got a text message from Pastor Jim Davis yesterday, who we shipped off to Jamaica to uh, to meet with some of our um, friends in ministry down there. And uh, one of our uh, primary associates down there, Kenton, is a name that you might be familiar with. Uh, he was in a serious car accident, and uh, three other people. He seems to be okay, but three other people. Um, that he was in the accident with uh, actually died. And so um, we want to keep them uh, in our prayers um, and for safety uh, for, for Pastor Jim as he is still down there and, and ministering uh, to, our, uh, to our friends and associates down there. Let, let's be in prayer together. God, thank you for your mercy. We are so grateful. Lord, lavish your mercy on us, those 
that are in compromising situations, those left without many options. Lord, bring your mercy down on those that are sick and in need of your healing touch. Have your mercy upon those that are lost and and lonely and depressed this holiday season. Lord, bring your mercy on those who are reminded not of their joy, but of their loss this holiday season. Lord, we ask that you be with Pastor Jim and protect him, keep him safe as he ministers to our friends in Jamaica. Lord, be with Kenton as he heals from this accident and be with those loved ones, family members that are grieving the loss of this accident of their loved ones as a result of this accident, Lord. Lord, bless Pastor Steve as as he and Sheila are still vacationing and enjoying themselves that bring about rest and restoration for them. And thank you that we can be your church, your children, who bear witness to the great access of your mercy through Jesus Christ. Let us shine your light into this world and to be people not only accepting mercy, but giving it as you would give it. Thank you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, As we send you out, um, we have, this is, uh, we are arriving on Christmas and there's some unique opportunities to not only share together Uh, in fellowship, but also to provide an opportunity for people who may not go to church or whatever they might believe to come in and and be a part of of what we do here. Uh, Particularly, we have a a friends and family uh, celebration, a Christmas celebration on December 9th. Uh, There are tickets available at the table out there. Uh, There's a children's uh, event um, called Keepsake Christmas. Uh, We're looking forward to a a, a light lunch and then a concert in the evening for Cloverton. You don't have to go to all of them, but there's one ticket that covers covers everything. We'd love to have you join us and um, maybe invite a a friend. And then we have our Christmas Eve services at uh, 3, 5, and 7. And um, statistically, people are more likely to go to Christmas Eve services than any other service throughout the year. So you might have a name or someone that God has placed on your heart to bring them along on Christmas Eve. So we invite you to do that um, and, and participate with us as well. Don't forget our boxes are in the back for either your offering or your Connect card or both. And um, we're so glad that you're here and that we can enjoy this Advent season together as the family of God. Go in his name and in his mercy and in his peace. Amen.